My name is Claude. I'm one of the lead pastors here, and we'll be reading out of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Thanks, Claude. Good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning to you. Really glad to be here. Uh, really excited to uh, bring the word today. We are in Isaiah chapter 5, as you just heard, uh, week 6 of a series called Tried and Truth. And uh, the message this morning is entitled Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated an anniversary a couple weeks ago, uh, 18 years. And uh, yeah, whoa, I'm excited. Uh, I tricked her for that long so far. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be uh, going to be a good year. However, uh, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> I, uh, I've been thinking about kind of a relationship. Uh, we Last week, we went to New York City to see a Yankee game and um, got a chance to kind of talk about kind of the journey of our relationship. And um, I know her really well now and, um, you know, always learning more about her for sure. She just walked in the room. Hi. <laughs> uh, but I want to tell you about a time where I did not know her very well and it uh, became an issue for me. (laughs) Uh, We were married in August of 2001, and in April of 2003, uh, there was an ice storm, at least in Syracuse, where we were living. We were living in a town called Baldwinsville, and uh, this was a pretty severe ice storm, so much so that it knocked out power for several days to our little town, and most of Syracuse as well. it was April, so, you know, it wasn't the warmest of all places, and it was the ice storm, so it was, it was pretty cold. And uh, for several days, I can't remember how many days, but at least two nights and three days at the very least, uh, we were without power and we were without heat. And uh, we were kind of still newlyweds, not two years into this whole thing, and so we thought it was really cool and almost kind of romantic. You know, you have to be all nice and cozy and all that kind of stuff. Um, but after about three hours, it gets a little old. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I kind of miss lights, <laughs> kind of miss heat, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and randomly, there was this one side street in Baldensville called McCary Street that my aunt lived on that actually had power. They never lost power. I have no idea why, but um, it ended up becoming our refuge for two or three days. Uh, we would come. It was when... Uh, Syracuse University basketball won the national championship during that week, and so we got to watch it, you know, pretty excited about that. Uh, And we would go there to get food and warmth and just kind of not be as bored. And um, 
if you know anything about Daedra, uh, she's the, the kind of woman that loves, absolutely loves happy endings to all of her stories. She will not watch a movie uh, unless it has a happy ending. She's the Hallmark queen, you know, and um, uh, so she's always been that way for sure. So uh, my aunt suggested that we watch a scary movie um, to kind of pass some time, and uh, this she does not like scary movies, not because, uh, and it's funny because it's not because she's scared and, and doesn't like being scared. She gets mad. She just gets mad when she's scared. You know, like, I do not like this and gets angry about it. Uh, and there was nothing else to do. And so I'm convinced here, come on, we should watch this movie. We should watch this movie. It was a movie called The Ring. And, um, and <laughs> I, I guess you know it. Uh, I thought, hey, what else are we going to do? You know what I mean? And so uh, we... She finally said, okay, might as well. We, we watched this movie, and uh, I thought it was cool. You know, this lady pops out of the TV. I thought that was all exciting, you know. Uh, but she comes out of a well. She comes out of a TV. She kills everybody. It's, yeah, it was, it was fairly frightening. The thing I forgot about this movie is that after the movie was over, we had to go home to our dark and freezing cold apartment. Uh, now... <laughs> I'm not very smart, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I got college educated, you know, but I never put the pieces together necessarily that like I force my wife to watch the scary movie against her will and then I'm bringing her to this dark, freezing cold apartment, you know, and uh, say, all right, good night, honey, I'll see you in the morning, you know, and needless to say, you probably know where this is going far before I did, uh, I didn't sleep at all that night, you know, at several times an hour, and she can corroborate my story, several times an hour I had to get up and walk around the apartment to make sure that the things that were creaking and stuff weren't that lady coming out, you know, the TV or whatever, you know, and uh, I just remember being so like flabbergasted, you know, like I'm so shocked that all this is happening. I just wanted to go to sleep and I'm like, how can, what, it was fake, you know, and all the things that you say to reassure somebody that there's no creepy lady actually going to kill you, you know, all that stuff, it's fake and and uh, those noises aren't really things happening, you know, and you, you can see your breath. That's because, you know, the uh, heat's not on and all that kind of stuff. I was so shocked that I was up all night, you know, making sure these things happened. And uh, I, I shouldn't have been, you know, I shouldn't have been. That's just one of many stories where I did something dumb and I was shocked at the consequences of my poor decision. So what I want to do this morning to, to begin our uh, time together is ask you the question, why are we surprised when this happens to us? Why are we surprised when we reap the consequences of our poor decisions? I'm sure you've done it uh, as, as well. Uh, if I asked your best friend or your spouse or whoever it would be, they could probably give me several examples of uh, poor decisions that you've made and maybe surprised by it. I get surprised when I look a little paunchier after eating a week's worth of fried food, you know? Um, I'm like, what? What's happening? What does the scale say that, you know? But it was my poor decision. Uh, we probably all know someone that gets a little bit irate when they get pulled over driving extra fast, you know? Um, of course, you know, you admit that you were going over the speed limit, but man, they caught me and pretty upset about it. I totally remember this. Uh, 20-year-old Eric Hamlin was completely shocked when I got a credit card and 
realized I actually had to pay for the things that I was giving them my plastic for, you know? Like, I just thought I just gave a signature and I paid for my stuff. You know, that, that was it. But then I got the bill in the mail and I was like, what is happening? I had to pay for that stuff, you know? Shocked, shocked by my poor decisions, you know? No matter how long we live, we always feel as though we're caught off guard when we reap the consequences of our poor decisions. But it's a tale as, told, as old as time itself, isn't it? You reap that which you sow. You reap that which you sow. No farmer is caught off guard when they are sowing carrot seeds into the ground, and then they reap carrots later on in the harvest. They never think, hey, honey, it's so amazing. What are the chances? You know, I put carrot seeds down, and a few months later, there were carrots there. There's farmers do not uh, be aren't surprised by those kind of things, but we as humans... We are very surprised when we uh, sow bad things or poor decisions and we end up reaping the consequences of those decisions. You know, we, we sow seeds of gossip or arrogance or laziness, whatever the seeds that we sow would be like, and uh, we get surprised when we reap those things sometimes. Uh, it'd be like the farmer sowing carrot seeds and being, you know, having watermelon come up. Uh, it's not going to happen. So I want to explain to you the context a little bit about uh, our text today. Isaiah is, is essentially wrapping up the preface to his 66-chapter book here. And he's taken the first five chapters to basically give us the context of his messianic prophecies in chapters 6 through 66. And right now, as he's setting up these 61 chapters, he is uh, delivering to us a song about how uh, the situation that the nation of Judah would actually find themselves in. And the cool thing about our passage today is that it actually is a song, a song designed uh, to be sung. I envision Isaiah kind of bringing a guitar out and going to the, the place in the temple courtyard that he normally preaches from, uh, but he's got an instrument and he's beginning to sing a song about his beloved here. Um, and what we've we've already heard from Claude this morning is that the law of sowing and reaping has gone terribly wrong for the owner of this vineyard. This is a situation where uh, the law of sowing and reaping um, went off the rails. And we're going to explain about why that is in a second. Uh, I feel like he's being a little bit sneaky, Isaiah, uh, in the way that he's delivering this, this uh, message. Um, I, I'm not very familiar with country music, uh, but the country music that I do know uh, is, is kind of like this song here, the first seven verses. It kind of starts off all nice and sweet, and the hook is all great and everything, and then all of a sudden, devastation and turmoil at the end, you know? Uh, I think Isaiah's kind of uh, doing this in his message, but he's doing it for a very specific point, and we'll get to that point momentarily here. Uh, let's look at verses 1 and 2 together and imagine Isaiah with his guitar beginning to sing a very singable pop song, uh, you know, about a friend of his and this friend's vineyard. So look at 1 and 2 again, if you would. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, the cool thing about Isaiah is that this would actually sound very much like a pretty typical pop song of the day. If they had pop songs, uh, you know, 2,700 years ago or however long this was. We find 
in the Song of Solomon and other places in Scripture and outside of Scripture that the idea of a vineyard was common vernacular for a man to describe the woman that he loved. And so it seems a little bit weird to us, like this man would be singing about a vineyard, but he was singing about a woman, a woman that he loved. Now, you might think vineyard, that sounds a little bit weird, but it'd probably be just like if Isaiah were to travel to the 21st century and hear some of the ways that we talk about the people that we love. And so we sing things like, I just want to wrap my arms around my honey. And Isaiah would be like, yo, that would be sticky and gross. <laughs> you know, you don't want to do that. Or like, even worse, my baby and I are getting married today. He'd be like, ooh, you're marrying a baby? That's, that's terrible, you know? Don't, don't do it. Don't marry your baby. Uh, that's kind of what's happening here. Isaiah is singing about a vineyard, you know, and, and he's talking about his friend and his, and his baby, his, his honey, his vineyard. And uh, so that's, it would be assumed, okay? It would be assumed that this is what's happening, that there's, it's a love story between a guy and a girl. But what starts out as this love song, again, turns into this heartbreaking kind of song. And verse 2 shows us that the owner of this vineyard here goes to great lengths to care for the vineyard. You know, he, he tills the soil and clears it of stones. He purchases it on a very fertile plot of land, first of all. Tills the soil, clears it of stones. Then he plants what's known as sorek vines in the Hebrew. The sorek vine was the highest end vine that you could actually buy. It wasn't like, you know, a cheap low-end version of a vine. <laughs> it was the best that you could buy, the best kind of vine that you could plant. He even builds a watchtower in the middle of it, which I find very interesting because what that means is that he's setting up a permanent dwelling for for uh, somebody to look after it 24-7. So it wasn't like, you know, your normal uh, garden where you would go and uh, kind of look at it for, for a while, then go somewhere else and forget about it. Somebody would actually live on premises, you know, and uh, would be there constantly to care for it and look, uh, look after it. Uh, the wine vat, uh, in the Hebrew is actually a permanent storage place that the wine is not only uh, produced in, uh, but also stored permanently. It's not just a temporary place so that it's a seasonal kind of thing. This is where everybody would go uh, once the wine uh, was created. So the point of all of this is that the man, the owner of the vineyard, worked so hard uh, to make sure that he did everything right. When it comes to the law of sowing and reaping, he should have expected good grapes and delicious wine. He says, I did everything right. I, didn't, I spared no expense. I, I didn't cut any corners. I did everything that I should have done to make sure that there was a good harvest. But at the end of verse 2, it shows us that it didn't happen that way. The end of verse 2 says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, I think that's a little bit of an unfortunate translation because the ESV translation uh, is a little bit tricky. Uh, remember, Isaiah is a master uh, poet and songwriter in this case, and the two words that he uses for grapes and wild grapes actually rhyme, uh, and so it wouldn't have read wild grape, grapes and wild grapes. It actually reads good grapes or tasty grapes and stink fruit, literally Stink fruit. It'd be cool if the ESV put stink fruit in there, but uh, it didn't. So uh, he, went, he thought it would be tasty fruit, but it was actually stinky fruit. And I came up with a line. Claude loves these. <laughs> oh, my Lord. This is, what, this is the line that it would be like in, in uh, English today. It would be something like, all right. <laughs> it would be something like, I meant to plant the sweet, but instead I got some feet. 
right? Is that right? Not bad, not bad. He went to plant the sweet, but instead he got some feet. You know, stinky feet, you know, I think it kind of works, right? That's exactly what Isaiah is trying to say uh, in this, is that the the owner of the vineyard did everything right, everything that he could have done, but instead of sweet, beautiful grapes ready to produce wine, uh, he got stink fruit, actual stink fruit. And Isaiah, if Isaiah's audience is still tracking uh, with his song, they're feeling something now. They're beginning to feel something in this song. Maybe what they're feeling is anger, uh, that all of his efforts didn't yield what he hoped. You know, maybe they're feeling disappointment because they've been there. They've been there. They've done everything they can uh, to ensure a good relationship, but the relationship has gone sour. You know, unrequited love is such a terrible feeling when it's not reciprocated, right? So they're feeling maybe that. Maybe they're feeling curious, like curiosity about why on earth did this vineyard uh, not produce sweet grapes? Why is this guy not reaping what he actually sowed? And so a good song always makes us feel something, doesn't it? Always makes us feel something. And so verses 3 and 4 begin to explain what's happening as a result of this. So verses 3 and 4 say, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What better environment could the vineyard owner create? That's the point. What better environment could the vineyard owner create? He invites Judah into the story to figure out what went wrong. Isaiah says, okay, the owner wants us to know what did he do wrong? What on earth uh, could I have done different? And the answer isn't super clear. Remember, He's got fertile soil. He's got the most expensive and most fertile vines. Uh, He's got well-built walls. Uh, It's even double-walled, as we'll see in the next verse or two. Uh, He had somebody there 24-7, so it was always cared for. Uh, There was a watchtower in the middle of it. So we're left kind of shrugging our shoulders and saying, huh, I wonder where he's going with this thing, and putting the blame not on the owner or even on the environment, but putting it on whoever the vineyard represents. And so verses 5 and 6, we'll, we'll read those as well. Say, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. See the double wall there. And it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Whatever and whoever this is, things are not going well for them. As this uh, singer-songwriter Isaiah kind of points out, he's not just expressing sadness that things didn't work out. He's expressing anger that things didn't work out. Uh, The owner isn't just walking away, you know, from this vineyard. Uh, He's actually deconstructing the environment that the vineyard was in. And if people are tracking with the song up to this point, up until verse 6, Isaiah's audience might be tempted to say something like, Hey, good for you, bro. Don't let that girl get away with the terrible things that she did. You know, you did everything right. It was her fault, and, and she's the one that messed up. Or if I did all of that for my vineyard, uh, she, and she gave me stink fruit instead of the pleasant fruit, I'd stop being so nice to her also. Good for you. 
That's what's so masterful about Isaiah. That's what one of the things I love about Isaiah so much is that he makes us feel something incredible. And then he brings it home. He hits home by showing how we're actually on the wrong side of this analogy. So we read it already, but verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. <gasps> Wait, we're the vineyard? Judah's saying, wait a second, he's talking about us. We're the vineyard. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this pop song, this love song, is really about God and his people. And Isaiah uh, implies that if you were tempted to get upset at the owner, uh, at the vineyard, excuse me, uh, you now have to be upset with yourself. If you have felt something because you thought that the owner of the vineyard should have deserved something better, you're now upset with yourself because you know this song is about you. God has been so loving and so attentive to his people, but they don't produce the fruit in keeping with his care. In fact, when God expected the sweet, instead he got feet, right? You see where this is going, right? So when I convinced Daedra uh, to watch a scary movie, I shouldn't have been surprised when I was up all night, right? I reap what I sow. That's just kind of how life works. And when God is so good to me, and I turn my back on him, and it's stink fruit, you know, to him, uh, I shouldn't be surprised when I reap the consequences of my poor spiritual decisions either. The song, it works so well because we're surprised that the owner of the vineyard didn't reap what he sowed. We think, wait a second, that's not how the law of sowing and reaping actually works. But we find here that Isaiah is saying, no, this is exactly how it works. When you make the decision uh, to turn away and produce think fruit with your life, you will sow what you reap. See, when it comes to planting, the seed itself has no freedom to become anything it wants. You plant that carrot seed in the ground, and the carrot seed can't say, mm, I'm going to turn into a cucumber. I'll trick them all, you know. Uh, that's, not, that's not what, they, what a seed actually does. But you and I, we have the freedom to respond to the environment that God has cultivated for us. And so Isaiah says, we really have no excuse. We can't say that God has been bad to us and good to our neighbor over there. That's the reason why they have that big house, is because God's been good to them and terrible to me. Isaiah says that you were involved in this environment where God has lovingly and just carefully doted over you. He's prepared this environment of fertile soil for you to grow. And, and your proximity to his care means that you should be producing good fruit in keeping with that environment. But instead, your life has produced stink fruit. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, we've kind of already addressed that throughout this entire summer through Isaiah chapter 1 through 4. That even though they looked the part and they knew all the right things to say and do, their hearts were far from him. And so they've had, they made the decision that I'm going to pretend the part, but my heart is going to drift toward idols and toward even myself on the throne of my own life. And when that happens, God says, man, I did everything right. You can't give me, you can't point the finger at me and say, if only God would have been good to me. If only God would have had created the environment for me to thrive in, then things would have been better for me. Oh, he's already done that. We can count our blessings, as the old hymn says, right? And uh, we can think about all the incredible things that God has done. Uh, the book of Acts says that 
The reason why we live in the time and the place that we do is because God uh, has prepared that for us, right? And so even the the fact that we live in the 21st century in a country like America, uh, in a beautiful state like New York, just shows that God has created an environment for us to thrive and, and to flourish in his good graces. So we have no excuse. However, when we don't, uh, when we make excuses, we reap that which we sow. Now, before we get too deep into the theological, like, yeah, buts, and what ifs, and all those kind of things, it's important that we don't read into this passage with our Western cultural lenses on. What I mean by that is it's important that uh, we don't see everything that's wrong in our lives as a direct result of some kind of individualistic sin or some punishment that God is placing on us for not producing fruit, right? Because that would be just a, a terrible game to play. You know, I'm producing fruit in my life, but is it good enough for God? Uh, did I make enough fruit with my life? Did I do enough good things today for God to not destroy the environment that he's created for me to be? That's not what Isaiah uh, is expressing in here. We also uh, shouldn't boil down Christianity to morality. I think in our Western culture, we look at a passage like this maybe, and we say, okay, so God wants me to be moral. God wants me to do good things and not do bad things. And if I could just be a moral person, that will get me into God's good graces. That's not what Isaiah is saying here at all. What I believe Isaiah is trying to say, what I'm trying to say in this passage as well, is that God loves you so much that he's crafted this environment of protection and care where you can be near to him. He's with you 24-7. He's built this watchtower to protect you constantly. And so he's created this environment where you and him can live together, can be drawn near to each other, right? James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so this proximity to God and to his loving care should produce in us a type of fruit that is pleasing to him. So it's not an individualistic thing where, hey, I threw some seeds down in some good soil. Now it's your job to do the right things, right? No, the point is that God is saying, I've created an environment for you to be near to me, for us to be with each other. And as a result of that dynamic relationship, you can produce fruit. You can thrive in this environment. I believe that this text is addressing an age-old question that just about everyone who has ever lived uh, has asked a form of. It goes something like this. The, the short version is, why me? <laughs> why me? Why am I going through? Why am I suffering the way that I am when somebody else down the street is, looks like they're just fine? Or why do bad things happen to good people, right? Why do bad things happen? Uh, I'm really good. I'm, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody, so... Uh, Pretty good, right? We ask those kind of questions, uh, and I believe that Isaiah is beginning to address this here. Uh, I think the reason is because we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions, not by our actions. Now, we say things like, you know, our actions may have been poor, but that doesn't matter. My intentions were really good. So going back to 2003, you know, my intentions were great. Sure, I subjected my wife to her least favorite movie ever, you know, uh, but I didn't want her to be bored. Uh, I didn't want her to be sitting around in the dark twirling her thumbs, right? We wanted to do something, and we had access to a place uh, that had warmth and light. So I had really, really good intentions, and so 
uh, I am shocked that I'm up all night, <laughs> you know. Uh, I was going well over the speed limit, you know, that happens from time to time. Uh, but you know what? I was on my way to church. I was on my way to church, so you got to give me a break. And if I get a ticket, God, where were you? Where were you? I was righteously trying to do the right thing. And, oh, God, why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> Isaiah reminds us that God has loved us, has nurtured us, has cared for us. Therefore, our actions should not produce stink fruit. If I can just speak to the Christian in the moment uh, in this room for just a quick moment, I realize that we have people here from all over the spiritual spectrum, but I want to challenge the Christian in the room very briefly if I can. There's a chance that you believe that you should reap the fruit of your intentions as a believer. In other words, uh, you think that just because you thought about doing the right thing or you have intentions to do the right thing, uh, it means that you should reap a harvest of goodness without actually sowing anything. And again, I'm not arguing that Christianity is boiled down to a series of good actions or bad actions. But what I'm saying is, and again, I'm not, I'm not speaking in terms of your salvation. Uh, I mean to ask the question, is your redeemed life producing good fruit or stink fruit? Is your redeemed life, the life that Christ died to redeem, producing good fruit or stink fruit? Remember, the vineyard was God's chosen people already. So we're not talking about earning your salvation or doing enough good to make God happy. God is addressing people whose lives should be fruitful because of his, their connection to him. So what kind of fruit is your life producing? I think it's interesting to note that Isaiah says that this vineyard produces fruit. Not the fruit that was expected, of course, but it still produces something. So we can potentially read into this uh, passage saying that every single one of our lives will produce fruit of some kind. It might be stink fruit, might be grapes. It might be something that uh, is expected and, and really, really good. But at the end of the day, we can't say, uh, I just have, I haven't really produced anything with my life. No, you'll produce something with your life. It might be something that you don't intend to produce, right? But you will produce something with your life. So what fruit will it be? I'm not speaking out of context. I don't believe. I believe that Jesus himself made this point when he was speaking to his disciples. In John chapter 15, he tells us that he is the vine and that his father is the vineyard owner or the gardener or the vine dresser, whatever version you have. Then in verse 8 of chapter 15, uh, here's what he says. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I'll read it again. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. So here, let's connect the dots. So if God is creating the appropriate environment for us to bear fruit and being connected to Jesus as our vine allows us to bear fruit, then radical obedience to him isn't a risk. It's actually the result of, of being in proximity to God and it's fruit bearing and God glorifying. So what I mean by that is if you feel like God is asking you to take a, a God risk, something that would be a radical, a radically obedient thing for you to do, you don't have to be scared. 
You don't have to be scared of the what ifs, you know, or the yeah, but dot, dot, dot. If he's asking you to do it, you don't have to be afraid. It's producing fruit. There's a reason for it. Radical obedience is what produces fruit. And that radical obedience stems from being connected to the vine, which is Christ. Being in an environment that God creates that's healthy and life-sustaining. So if uh, the skeptic who is far from God uh, might be in, in this room, might think of Christianity as a special interest group, right? Uh, trying to kind of push an agenda through culture from a position of superiority. But Jesus is reminding us that true Christianity, true faith, obeying him looks nothing like that at all. And so Jesus actually says, here's what obedience to me looks like. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, love your enemies, Love your enemies. Now, that might uh, have lost its edge in 21st century, you know, West or whatever, um, compared to when Jesus first uttered those commands. So Jesus said to love your enemy. And if you think about when he said it, uh, there were actually enemies that were uh, occupying the nation that you were involved in that would demand you, force you to carry their gear however long they would want you to carry. And so Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. What? That's radical obedience. He says, if someone slaps you on a cheek, you need to turn the other cheek. What? Jesus doesn't really mean that, right? If someone wanted to do that to me, he really meant kick them in the stomach as hard as you can. No, no. Faith that is, I, I guess faith that is philosophical has no bearing on our daily lives, right? If we have just a, a head faith that has in good intentions wrapped around it, but not action to it, it really has no bearing on our lives. And I'll say it this way, that kind of faith that is philosophical and has no bearing, that's the tried and that's the failed. Radical obedience that responds to the care of God is the truth. See, we're not we're not trying to muster up enough good inside of us so that we will be known as moralistic people. We're just simply responding to the environment that God has created uh, for us to respond to. And the choice is then ours. Do we say, I'm all in God, I'm all yours. I want to produce the fruit that you want me to with my one and only life, as difficult as it may be. Or do I say, no, thanks, God, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be on the throne of my own life and run after other gods. It's easy for us in this room on a Sunday morning to say, the first one, I'm gonna, I just want more of God. I want to uh, produce the fruit that he wants me to. But understand that that would mean radical obedience from you. Radical obedience. It might not look like you carrying a Bible to school. That might be a good step and it might be you know, great. Uh, it might not be saying, I'll pray for you to a coworker or whatever. That, that's great, and that's the first step. But radical obedience looks so much different. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus said there's actually a part A and a part B to it. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. And what's interesting about that is that both of the uses of the word love imply a type of action, imply action. So it's not just saying, I'm thinking about my neighbor, I really love them, or 
God, I'm thinking about you. Yeah, I, I really love you. There's an action that Jesus is insisting is part of the greatest commandment, the greatest thing that we can do with our lives. And so radical obedience to Jesus doesn't just look like you thinking nice things about God and, and about people. Radical obedience actually looks like action. So none of us have the right to be surprised when we reap the consequences of our poor decisions, do we? God has granted to all of us the environment to respond to his goodness, to his protection, and to his care. And as, as we respond to this radical uh, love in radical obedience, our lives will produce the good fruit that, uh, from the soil that we find ourselves in. One of the things I love about God and one of the things that uh, separates Christianity from all other religions or other worldviews even uh, is that God knows that we're helpless, right? Uh, unless he shows up, we're not going to be perfect. Now, we can do our best. We can get really, really good at looking the part, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, we're still sinful human beings. And so God doesn't say, hey, you know what? If you just work hard enough, then I'm going to show up and I'll just kind of help you along, right? He says, no, no, no. I'll create the environment for you to respond to my goodness. And then it gives us the choice to say yay or nay to that environment. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do in your environment? I, in fact, I feel like this text almost demands something from every one of us. If, if you're hearing my voice this morning on a podcast or here in the room, uh, you can't help but ask how you're going to respond to this. Or even what kind of fruit am I producing with my one and only life? You know, we believe that the Holy Spirit has been at work in us, sometimes maybe even at work for years, whispering what our next step is. So this morning, my question is very similar to that, is when will we act on that which the Spirit is speaking to us about? Put it up on the screen this way. When will I act on the radical obedience God is calling me to? When will I act on the radical obedience God is calling me to? Notice it doesn't say, will I act? Because you can say, yes, I will. I'll get to it next week or next month or when things settle down in my life. How many of your lives have actually settled down <laughs> since the first time you said that, right? No, we say we're going to settle down and then life gets busier and more hectic and life just happens, right? So I'm not asking you, will you act? I'm asking you, when will you act? And I would love for you to assess your week. In the next few moments, we're going to have a time to just kind of bow our heads, close our eyes, respond to the word. We're going to sing songs about responding to the goodness of God. Uh, but I would love in these next few moments to think about, okay, when am I going to do that? I know God has called me to something radical. When am I going to roll up my sleeves and say, Today's the day. Now is the time. With fall right around the corner, unfortunately, uh, I know life begins to transition a little bit in school and, and even work and things like that. Uh, this is a great season to say, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath. And I'm going to say yes to the radical obedience that God is calling me to. I challenge you to put something on a calendar to say, okay, Monday morning when I get to work or um, Next time I see that person that God is actually speaking to me about, this is when I'm going to do it. And then not just put it on a calendar, but have somebody hold you accountable to that. 
Maybe it's somebody in this room where you just nudge them and say, hey, ask me how I'm doing with this question on Friday or whatever it would be. Um, but when will I act on the radical obedience that God is calling me to? In fact, could you do that in this moment now? Could you just bow your heads and hearts with me? I'm going to pray, then we're going to, again, just have a time to respond in song to what the Spirit of God is challenging us over. But in these moments, instead of thinking about what's next, think about what God has has already asked you to do in radical obedience. For so many of us, we already know. We already have that on our minds. We've been putting it off for so long. When will I respond? When will I act on it? The good news is that God's not in heaven angry at you for producing stink fruit, right? That's what uh, the beauty of the gospel is, is that in our moment of weakness, when God knew the kind of fruit that our lives are going to produce, he sent his one and only son to live the perfect life that we can never live and then die in our place. So that now when we turn from those things that have produced stink fruit in our lives, we can say it's because of the grace of God, because of the blood of Jesus allowing access into the throne room of God that I'm able to have that second chance, that third chance, whatever, how many chances we would need. So as we think about the the goodness of Jesus and the good news that his life demonstrates, let's think about the implications on our lives and on the fruit that our lives will produce. Heavenly Father, I ask that in these next several moments that your Holy Spirit will continue to speak to our hearts. God, we, we ask that our ears, our spiritual ears, would be closed off to the things that this world would speak to us, the ways that uh, the enemy would try to speak lies into our lives about how it's too hard or how uh, we can't do it or we've tried and failed too often. Give us, Lord God, your grace to hear your truth today, to have your spirit whisper grace and peace, hope to us in these moments. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name.